Lord, allow us this morning as we open up your word, as we seek to understand, Lord, the, the beauty and the importance of 2 Samuel in particular, Lord, that you would allow us to be teachable, to be humble, to place ourselves under your truth, and that, Lord, that uh, you would have freedom to, uh, to impart to us, Lord, what you desire for us to know and understand about how awesome you are, about how you work in our lives, and, Lord, how you are a God that is worthy of our worship. Allow me simply this morning to be your mouthpiece, and Lord, would you take um, all that I have prepared, Lord, under your guidance as, as a means by which we can be strengthened as a body to glorify you and to live our lives in a way, Lord, that would be pursuing Christ-likeness. Lord, we ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, if you've ever flown on a plane before, you know what it's like when you get on that plane and the, uh, the airline attendants ask for everyone's attention, and they either show you a video or they stand in front of you, and they go through all the different things that you have to do and to make sure that you're safe on the plane, pointing out the exits, pointing out how to put the seatbelt on, all that kind of stuff. And if you've flown a number of times, your tendency is to do what? It's to tune out, it's to, you know... Get the iPad out, you know, get the phone out and just kind of figure out, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I don't have to listen, that kind of stuff. Um, last year when we went to Bolivia, we flew on Copa. Now, you have to understand, I don't speak much Spanish at all. Um, and uh, although my wedding was in Spanish, um, I only had to learn one word, and that was C. And, and it was a hard one to remember. So as we go down to Bolivia, we're fortunate that we work, with, um, we work with people there that can do translation. They do a fantastic job, but um, I was taught a word that was helpful, and um, it's a word that can be used kind of universally, just kind of like, you know, sure, and it's the word claro. And, and, and the interesting thing is that J.D. and I were together, and, and J.D. has this great ability. He can answer someone when he has no clue what they're saying, just by kind of shaking his head, okay? You know, so they could say, you know, do you, do you know how to get out of this plane, you know, properly? He can just kind of, and they're like, okay, that's great. Um, but they look at me, and they're like, okay, I want to actually hear some words. And so I'd say, claro, you know, which means sure, although I have no idea what you're talking about, but I've learned a word that can help me out, okay? And, and, and my point here is to say, in that context, you, you listen as the flight attendant is giving that information, and you can get so desensitized that sometimes you don't listen. You just kind of focus on your own things. We are at the beginning of a book, and today what we're going to do, as I mentioned, is, is kind of a dog's breakfast. We're, we're going to be looking at a number of different places to help give some, some insight to Second Samuel, and there may be a sense in which it's easy for us to tune out. And I want to encourage you to not do that. Because what my, my goal this morning, I really have three focus goals just as I begin this morning. Number one, to point out the significance of 2 Samuel to the rest of the Bible. There's a reason why God gave us 2 Samuel. Would you agree with that? It didn't just stop at the end of 1 Samuel. There's a reason why it continues on here. Secondly, I want to prepare you for our journey through 2 Samuel. So much of what I'm going to share with you this morning is going to help at least get us out of the stall, so to speak, so that we can, we can run and we know where to run and we have a little framework that will help us to run in the right direction and things will begin to make sense. And you'll see maybe 2 Samuel in a greater context. The third thing, ultimately, is I want to point you to Christ through this book. I want, I want to show you, at least initially, how Christ is the answer to this book. In fact, it's the answer to every book of the Bible. We ultimately see Christ as the only solution, the only savior, the only hope for mankind. And so that's where I really want to go here this morning. But we're going to begin um, just by, by identifying the fact that uh, the character by the name of David is probably one of the most significant characters in all of the Bible, maybe if not in all of history, but certainly in the Bible. He's found not only in the Old Testament, in the narrative sections, he's found throughout the, I would say, latter part of the Old Testament, but also significantly in the New Testament. The story of the life of David begins in 1 Samuel, 
around chapter 15 and ends in 1 Kings, the first couple of chapters when he ultimately dies. But his impact and his influence and his mark and his position as king continues on to permeate the Old Testament and then ultimately in the New Testament. And so I want to show you that a little bit this morning to help you then look back to 2 Samuel with wonder to realize where all this is, where all this is going. So for example, if you turn your Bibles to the New Testament, turn your Bibles to the New Testament, and if I say that, where should you go? You usually go to the beginning of the New Testament, right? And what does the beginning of the New Testament say? Matthew 1.1. It says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of who? The son of David, the son of Abraham. And right away, we are brought to the reality that there is a connection with David and Christ, that Jesus is considered to be the son of David. And so as we continue on through the Gospels, David continues to be connected to Jesus and to the establishing of God's kingdom. Two blind men followed after Jesus, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. In Matthew 12, 22 and 23, the people are amazed when Jesus heals a demon-possessed man who's both blind and mute, and they're saying, can this be the son of David? Messianic title, recognizing this is a significant person that is in front of them. In Matthew 21, 9, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, riding on a donkey as the promised king, the crowds that went before him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is that event called? Happens a week before Easter. Huh? Palm Sunday. This is the entrance of the king. This is the shouting. Here is the son of David. So they had an awareness of the, the, the person that they were anticipating coming to be their king. In fact, in John chapter 7 and verse 42, um, I should put these up there for you, here is what they recognize the scriptures actually teach. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So again, there's this connection between Christ and David. Christ is the offspring of David. Not only that, he's born in that same town where David um, lived. Let me go to the end of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. And in particular, chapter 22 and verse 16. Here's what we read. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of who? Of David, the bride and morning star. So Jesus is both the root, in other words, he's the ancestor, the divine ancestor of David, but he's also the descendant, or we could say the shoot of David, the human descendant. That's quite a statement, but it's all connected with David. And then, if we go back to the passage we read here this morning, the book of Acts in particular, um, in chapter 13, here we have this, this record of the Holy Spirit's activity in spreading the gospel through the, the preaching of God's word. We find Paul with Barnabas, and he's preaching in the synagogue. And here, Paul outlines the history of Israel kind of in a brief form. And I'm going to read this again. And just, just notice how he summarizes the content of Israel's history and brings it to Christ. Verse 16, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, saying, uh, said, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose uh, our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he came uh, sorry, he gave them their lands as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he set up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do my will." 
of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So you see, here's the connection. Here's the Old Testament. Here's the, here's the uh, I want to say, the, the redemptive line laid out for us in this sermon that Paul is giving. And we see in the context there how David is connected in particular to Jesus. Okay? Now, in this passage, we find this phrase. It's in Acts 13.22. It's also in 1 Samuel 13 and verses 30, uh, 13 through 14, and it's describing David's relationship with God, and this is what it says. It tells us that David is a man after God's own heart. You've probably heard that before. In fact, it's not unusual for, for people to encourage you to be like David because David was a man after God's own heart. But the question for us now, as we think about that statement, in thinking about David, is what does that expression mean? And there are, there are two ways you can approach this, and I will land on one, and hopefully it'll make sense. First of all, does it mean that God approves of David because David's heart is aligned with God? That David's character was so pure that God ultimately chose to work through him. So the God looked down and said, ah, there's David, look at his heart, his heart is so pure, I'm going to choose him, but then you're saying, well, wait a second, isn't he the guy that committed adultery? Yes. Isn't he the guy that committed murder? Yes. Isn't he the one that lied? Yes. And like I said, a lot of times you, you see this portrayed as you want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. And so in order to be that way, you have to be like David, follow David's example, be humble, love God's word, have a heart of love and compassion, love unity, love God, and we can go on. But there's a second possibility, and I would say that this is more accurately what the text is actually saying in the Hebrew. Does it mean that David is the one God's heart has chosen to be his king? That unlike Saul, who was chosen by the people, God had in his heart another man who was his choice after his own will and purpose. In other words, God is saying that David is my choice, not that God was David's choice and therefore God chose him. Now see, friends, if you go the other route, you could almost get down to a work salvation, couldn't you? If you be like David, be a man after God's own heart, then all right, I have to do this. I have to reach this plateau to be like David. And that's always a challenge for us. If we look back at Acts 13, 22, we see that God says about this man that he has chosen. This is what he says. He will be a man who will do all my will. I have chosen this man, and this man is going to do all my will. And David certainly did that mostly, right? He did exercise great faith when fighting against Goliath, the Philistine um, giant and champion, as he fought against the Amalekites and all God's enemies. He did trust God in difficult situations, whether that was in a, in a cave hiding from Saul or in a city using his gifts to feign insanity, whether he was humble, considerate, compassionate. He was a loyal friend, we know, to Jonathan in particular, he listened to the voice of the Lord. He took seriously the admonition not to touch the Lord's anointed. But he was also a sinner. And we know him for that, don't we? He committed adultery. Not only that, he lied to Uriah, the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband. And he committed murder by, by creating this plot to bring about his death. And so we have to reconcile these things together. God doesn't look down and say, well, David reached this plateau, therefore I'm going to take him. God said, I'm going to take him. He's the man I've chosen, and he will do my will. And the clarity of this understanding is found in 1 Samuel 16, 7, when God says to Samuel, the Lord does not, does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, God's chosen human king to rule over Israel would not be without sin. But he would seek to do all God's will. 
He would seek to listen to God's counsel. And when he fails in these responsibilities, he's quick to repent. The heart that God chooses is a heart that seeks to do his will. In other words, God chooses, and when God chooses, those whom he has chosen seek to do his will. That is what is true of believers. When God was drawing you to himself, did he say, hey, I think, I think you'll do because of the qualities that you have in your life. And then he says, okay, you've, you've reached that plateau. I'm going to pull you to myself. Is that how it works? No. There's nothing about us that is worthy of God's love and affection so much that he would choose us opposed to someone else. But he draws us to himself. We're told in Scripture, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, before the world was even created. So he didn't choose us because of anything that we had done to prove our own worth to him. But since God has chosen us, hear this, we want to do his will. Certainly we fail, but we want to do his will and so are sensitive to repent and to seek forgiveness and to be restored again. So if you or I profess to be a believer and to be a follower of Christ, but you don't desire to honestly do his will, you're skating on thin ice. You may be fooling yourself. True followers of Christ want to do his will. They may struggle, they may fail, and they will. And they may fight against God for some reason, but ultimately they want to do his will. They will be convicted by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They will be pushed to face their sin in such a way that they want to repent and they want to restore their relationship with God. That's what followers of Christ do. That's what true followers of Christ do. But if you don't care about doing his will... You might need to take a long, hard look at your life. You might want to be honest before God. You want to, might want to stop pretending to, or trying to fool those around you into thinking that you are truly one who considers God as your master. Now hear this. Those who, whom God chooses want to do all of his will. They want the encouragement of God's word to stay true to his will. In other words, they're eager to hear God's word. They're eager to be fashioned and shaped and challenged by God's word. They want the guidance of the Holy Spirit through God's word to comfort and to counsel them through life. They want the help of the body of Christ to pursue Christ. They want to be right with God. These are all things that a true follower of Christ desires to do. That doesn't come and then God says, okay, then I think I'll choose you. See, God came and he said, here is a man after my heart. Here is a man that I have chosen to be king in Israel. The people rose up and chose Saul. He failed. God says, but I have chosen David, and he will do my will. So all of this has been a picture of how significant the character of David is to the rest of the Bible and to the redemptive plan of God that ends up at Christ. And it is this unfolding redemptive plan that worms its way through the storyline of 2 Samuel. And we will see that over and over and over again. And it's the character of David and his relationship with God that shines the brightest. So the third point then we need to consider here is this. It's this idea of let your kingdom come. As you look at the heading of your handout, you see this is, the, this is what I have chosen to be the theme of this book. In, in, in uh, 1 Samuel, we were anticipating, you know, the, who, who would actually be king? Who would actually come to the place where they would, they would sit on that throne? Who was going to actually lead Israel? And now, as we get to 2 Samuel, we're going to see God's plan unfolding and his kingdom coming into being. There is going to be a king, and there is going to be a king who establishes God's word in the land, who seeks to honor God. And that kingdom now is coming. So 2 Samuel is the story of God's establishing his kingdom with David as king. And after all the mess that Israel has been through without a king at the beginning of 1 Samuel, with Saul as their king, there's this desire to be ruled by God's king and be under God's kingdom. Now Jesus taught in his prayer 
to, that for his disciples and for us, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now it's a prayer asking for God's kingdom to come by God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we, who are God's children, pray for his kingdom and his will to be done in his kingdom. We also are called to preach the gospel of the kingdom, that Jesus Christ rules and reigns as king because of what he has done on the cross. So the kingdom is the place where there is a king who rules, where there are people who are ruled by that king, and a sphere where the rule is recognized and taking place. So as we, we see there on the, uh, on the screen, the kingdom is where God's people are in God's place under God's rule. And so God is in the process now in 2 Samuel of, of ushering in a kingdom like that, a, a, a kingdom where God is now the one who is establishing his law, establishing his rule, and, and that has been carried out by sinful human beings, and yet it is God who is ultimately fleshing out his purposes and his will through that king. So certainly the kingdom existed in the Garden of Eden, but it was broken by sin. And the story of redemption has been this ongoing um, restoration of that kingdom again, where God's people living on earth are the willing subjects of God's rule. See, we we don't come and bend our knee before God because we're forced to. We come bend our knees before God because we want to. We rejoice over doing that. We long to do that. But there are many people who will not do that because they don't want to. Some people have this idea that Christianity is all about God making you do this and making you do that and you can't do this and you can't do that. And there's a complete distortion of understanding as to what it means to walk with God. We, we, we choose not to do certain things, not because God is commanding us necessarily not to and wants to rain on our parade, but because he is alerting us to the fact that if you do this, you're going to be stepping outside my will. But stepping outside his will means there's going to be difficulty, there's going to be a challenge for you because it doesn't fit morality. It doesn't fit within his, his scheme of, of law and rule, and to step outside of that would be dangerous for us. There's great comfort being safe in God's order, under his counsel, under his wisdom, under his guidance. So now, although somewhat simplified, we could say this about our study in 2 Samuel. Look, think of it this way. Everything before David, Genesis through 1 Samuel, is leading up to his reign. Everything after David, 1 Kings through Malachi, looks back to David's kingdom. In fact, if you look at the book of 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, the kings are, are typically measured by whom? David. David is that standard that people are measured by. And it continues on. David is the means by which we seek to understand this Messiah who is coming. But now as we come to our particular text, we're going we're gonna, to... Focus in on one verse. You say, oh, that's great. Pastor Rod's not going to go for an hour and a half. You think, right? right. One verse, a, I think an important verse, a pivotal verse. As we turn to the beginning of 2 Samuel, I want to encourage you to do that. And I want you to look at it in your own Bibles, and I want you to consider what it says. We must note that it appears from historical documents that First and Second Samuel were originally one book, but later divided into two sections. But what we have here is a pivotal verse that connects the events of First Samuel to the events of Second Samuel. Let's just read it. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. You're like, what are you going to say about that, Pastor Rod? Well, let's just step back and just ask ourselves the question, what's the point of having a hinge, and on a hinge there's a door? What's the point of a door? A door is there for you to walk through. It moves you from one room to another room, right? 
Now, there are doors in our culture that are on hinges that have things written on them that may help us in walking through. On the door, it might say push, or it might say pull. What you choose to do might determine how frustrated you get, right? Or men's and ladies. Don't pay attention to what's written there. You could be in trouble, right? Or how about in and out, right? If you work at a restaurant, you don't want to get that one wrong, right? We want to pay attention then to, to what's written on this hinge verse. Because what, what the writer is doing is he's giving us a summary of 1 Samuel, and he's, he's helping us then move from 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel, kind of pulling the, the, pulling the data and pulling the story uh, through this door to help us see then um, what it is that 2 Samuel is going to be about. There's a sense in which he's, he's reminding us, he's summarizing us, but he's also uh, nurturing us through this door to help us then on our way. So we want to begin then with the first part of this verse um, that uh, I'm calling this, the death of the people's king. This is the death of Saul. Now friends, this was a truly tragic event. And if you studied through 1 Samuel, you might, you might have gotten to the point where you're like, I don't like this guy. He's constantly running around, and he's constantly trying to kill David. I'm glad he's out of the picture. I'm glad he's dead. But we will soon find out that is not how David feels. That his death is tragic. And David is consumed with that. That'll be for next week. But his death was the culmination of disappointing events and attitudes in the life of the people of Israel as well as in the heart of Saul himself. Let's review a little bit the history then of 1 Samuel. Go back to Judges. Judges chapter 21 and verse 25. I'm sure you remember it by now. We've referred to it many times. Here's what it says. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what? That which was right in his own eyes. That was the crisis at the end of the book of Judges that ushers in then 1 Samuel. There's no king. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to God's people? Everyone's just doing what they want to do. And so God raises up a man by the name of Samuel. And Samuel's ministry was not to be king. Samuel's ministry ultimately was to reestablish in Israel the word of God. And if you remember in that story, we find Samuel growing up, and we find Samuel ministering the word. Actually, he was, a, I might want to say, an itinerant prophet. He would travel to different places, and he would teach, and he would maintain order, and he would show people what God's word said. But God raised Samuel up. But the people, while Samuel was ministering, were looking around them, and they were saying to themselves, these other nations around, they have kings, and these kings are strong, and they're powerful. And they lead their men out to battle. We want a king like that. And ultimately, friends, it was an act of rebellion. It was an act of rebellion because they were rejecting, ultimately, God as their king, even though God had previously promised that he would provide for them a king. Now, friends, there's a reminder here, just a little little kind of flashback reminder for us to be careful that our view of leadership is not measured by what the world considers important. The people of Israel looked around at all the nations around that were not God-fearing people, but they wanted their leader to be like their kings. And there's a challenge for us in the church. Many times the church wants their leadership, their pastors or they're teaching pastor to be cool and hip and connecting with the culture and popular, all that kind of stuff. I'm sorry, guys, you're stuck with me, okay? 
Yeah, there's nothing cool or hip. Well, I sometimes have a hurting hip, but that's a different thing, right? But you understand, there's a tendency to say, well, we want someone that, you know, could really connect with. Listen, the way God's, God works is through his word and ultimately, honestly, through plain, unusual, strange people. It's true. Now, in our culture, there are certainly pastors that are held up as, oh, look at them. But you know what? My, my, my responsibility is not to be cooler and hipper. Now, I might spike my hair every once in a while. I might wear some pointed shoes occasionally. Uh, I might actually wear a shirt that fits, um, but you're not going to see me in a T-shirt. You don't want to see me in a T-shirt. All right? And the point is that the goal for me is not to be hip. The goal for anyone in leadership in our church, any of our elders, is to be faithful men of God who love God's word, who love God, who love God's people, who are pursuing holiness and are seeking to live their lives glorifying God in, in their own pursuit of Christ-likeness. And we've got to be careful that we don't measure ourselves based on what the world thinks is important. We measure ourselves based on what God says is important. Now, that's just a little side note. But I think it's a helpful application and reminder for us. So rather than the people of God being patient and to wait for the king that God had promised that he was going to bring, they demand a king just like the other nations. And God gave them what they wanted in their rebellion. He would give them a king, but there would be consequences. And you might want to just jot down in your notes chapter 8 of 1 Samuel because of the latter part, verses 10 and following. Here's the word that is used. You want your king? This is what's going to happen. It's the word take. I'll take your sons. I'll take your daughters. I'll take your fields. I'll take your grain, your vineyards, your servants, your flocks. And they would cry out to God because of their king. You want to have a king? Okay, you'll have your king, but guess what? You're going you're gonna to lose a lot because that king will demand a lot from you. There'd be rules and regulations that God had set out so they could have their king as long as he lived in obedience to God. So God gave them an anointed Saul as king. And a reminder... The name Saul means asked for. God gave them what they asked for. So here in 2 Samuel 1.1, when we read the words of Saul's death, it is truly terrible news. It's news that one of the Lord's anointed is dead. It's also the end of the one in whom the people had placed such high expectations. Saul died because he failed to fulfill the conditions of his kingship. He did not obey the voice of the Lord. Only a king who would do all God's will could reign as king. And so Saul's death at the hands of the Philistines was dreadful proof of the people's foolishness in desiring a king like the nations. So the question then is this. What will happen to Israel now that Saul, their chosen king, is dead? What hope is there if, if Saul, the people's choice, could not be the leader they needed? The answer to their question was simple. While Saul was on a trajectory of descending from the throne of Israel because of his continued disobedience, David was on a trajectory of ascending the throne because of his continued obedience. Let me say that again. While Saul was in a trajectory of descending the throne because of his continued disobedience, David was on a trajectory of ascending the throne because of his continued obedience. And there is an overlap to the, the life and the, the, the activity of David and Saul, as you recall. So now we read, in the second part of this verse, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, this is what we call the victory, or I'm calling the victory of God's chosen king. We had this, 
This, the people's king who ultimately dies and fails, and that's proved out by his death, but now we have this victory of God's chosen king. You might even think about this as being the forgotten battle. We think about, you know, Saul went out and he died in fighting against the Philistines, but while that is going on, David is down fighting the Amalekites. David's story is considerably different than that of Saul's. God chose David, but it was totally different than God's choosing Saul. David did not become king immediately. In fact, he had to wait, and he had to take his time to rise to that place where he would be established as king. And from the moment Saul disobeyed God in Gilgal, and his downward trajectory began, um, David then was on this upward trajectory. For Saul, it was an issue of impatience and pride and and, and self-service. And when Saul is confronted, he does not repent. But David had to endure the vacillating character of Saul. Again, just flushing back through the the book of 1 Samuel, here are some things. David served Saul in the palace by playing his lyre, that small harp. He defeated Goliath when Saul should have been that king leading his army into battle. He served Saul by going into battle with the Philistines over and over and over again, but Saul did not like the songs that the people were singing when David came back victoriously. And eventually, in anger, Saul seeks to kill David. First, he starts healing, or hurling his spears at David in the palace, and then throughout the latter part of 1 Samuel, Saul is pursuing David, trying to murder him, trying to find him wherever he is. And still, when David has the opportunity to kill Saul, either in the cave or surrounded by his men in the camp, David would not touch the Lord's anointed. You see, it wasn't God's timing yet. It wasn't his job to snuff out Saul's life. The last five chapters of 1 Samuel the way they are written, demonstrate for us that the events that are taking place are taking place side by side, simultaneously. The events are taking place in the north and the events are taking place in the south. Saul is in the north fighting against the Philistines. David is in the south. Ultimately, we'll find out fighting against the Amalekites. And by putting these events side by side, or the writer of 1 and 2 Samuel is signaling three things for us. And we just want to home in on this a little bit here. First of all, that the story is not over. In other words, with with Saul's death, as tragic as it is, the story's not over. Even when there's defeat, there is also a victory. You just hold on to that thought. Secondly, there's still hope. David is the victorious one, and any hope in Saul is now gone, but it is still found in David. The story of what's happening now in the south with David and his men and this battle with the Amalekites is is beginning to show David in his leadership, rallying the people, being the protector that the people need. And ultimately, God is honored. You have to think through this a little bit. When Saul was disobedient, what group of people was Saul supposed to wipe out? The Amalekites. So here's David at the end of 2 Samuel, and he is the one that finishes the job that should have been finished earlier in chapter 15. So the Lord is honored by what David does in finishing the job of wiping out the Amalekites And so, in effect, David is reversing Saul's failure. So it was both a tragic day in that Saul died, but it was also a hopeful day in that David had been victorious. And then there's this last little section here. David remained two days in Ziklag. I don't know why, but the DMV came to mind when I read that. He he waited two days in Ziklag. Now you have to understand this. Just trying to paint the picture of the whole story here. David found himself in a quandary because he was actually going up 
with the Philistines to battle against Israel. But the Philistine leaders would not have David and his, his men with them, so they sent them away. So the Philistines continue on up north to, to fight against Saul and the armies of Israel. So David has no idea what's taking place up there. He knows a, a huge battle is going to take place. But he has no idea what the results are going to be, specifically what happened. And so the, the writer here is letting us know that there were two days of silence. There were two days where we just didn't have any information about what was going on. David did not know the outcome. Ultimately, um, we recognize that um, in chapter, th- or chapter 1 and verse 3, and, or 2 and following, we do have now a report that comes back to David that Saul is dead, Jonathan is dead, and the Israelites had been, had been overrun. But the reality here is that Ziklag and um, Mount Gilboa, where the battle was taking place, was co- a considerable distance away. And so this was a long time that they had to be away from, um, or not, to, to not hear anything about what was going on in the battle. Okay? But one of the interesting things that takes place takes place in chapter 30 of 1 Samuel. In particular, it's this event after he destroys the, the Amalekite army and the, the spoils of the Israelites are taken, or I said the spoils of, Saul, of, of David's, um, let me back up a little bit here. The Amalekites came into Ziklag. They, they, they routed the city. They took the wives and the children and the spoils out of the city and they burned the city. This is all happening when David was returning from battle or from, from going up with the Philistines. When they got to Ziklag, they found this and they chased down, found out who it was. It was the Amalekites. They destroyed the Amalekites. They're on their way back. On their way out to the Amalekites, there were some men that were with him that were just so tired they couldn't go any further and they stopped at a brook and they stayed with the baggage. And the men that continued on with David, when they won the battle and they came back with the spoils, they started to say, you know what? Those guys that stayed back with the bags, they shouldn't have any of the spoil. And this is where we see the beginning of David, so to speak, exercising kingly rule. Because this is what he says. For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And it says in the text, David made a statute and a rule for all Israel. So he is already beginning, so to speak, to exercise this leadership. Now, he needed to act. He needed to be wise in that point. And it was the right thing to do. And then they go back to the city, and they're waiting. And like I said, it isn't until verse 2, verse 3, that we find the news that Jonathan is dead, his dear friend, Saul is dead, the anointed king, and Israel has been defeated. And friends, this is the news that will set the stage for 2 Samuel. This is the backdrop that helps us enter into this story. Let me just give you a little structural guidance here as if you're going to read through this book, all right? Just jot this down. It's not on the screen. The, the, the book is really in three sections, chapters 1 through 8. Chapters 1 through 8. Um, basically, it's David's rise to, to, his, to, to actually to the throne. And it ends in chapter 8 with kind of a, a few summary verses. All right? So just from a structural pur- purpose, the verse, chapters 1 through 8 is David's rise in establishing his kingly position on the throne. Chapter 9 through chapter 20 is ultimately David as king, but in that context you have David's personal problems, in particular with Bathsheba, and then with his sons, all right? You thought you had some rough sons, just wait, okay? And then chapter, at the end of that, actually chapter 20, there's another summary statement. So there are these summary statements that help us understand that there are these little sections in the book. It just helps us view the book through a lens that really uh, is fleshed out by the structure of the text. And then uh, verse chapter 21 through chapter 24 is, is an epilogue. It summarizes things and moves us along a little bit in the story and helps us kind of hammer some things home. Now, if you've never read 2 Samuel, here's a highlight of what you will encounter. Let me just rattle off a few things. Bold-faced lies. Heartfelt lament. Countless murders and conspiracies. God's covenant with David. 
David's response to God because of his covenant. Countless battles. Adultery, confrontation, repentance, rape, sibling rivalry, rebellion, songs, songs, and more songs. And when I say songs, songs, there's songs in 2 Samuel, but just as J.D. read this morning, there are songs that David is writing in the history of 2 Samuel that are found in the Psalms. And then there's judgment. This is a fast-moving book. A lot of activity, a lot of things happening, and it's good to try and make sure you understand who's doing what with whom and how, because, because there's going to be different groups that kind of split off on occasion that oppose the kingship of David. And at times, David is his own worst enemy. Okay? Now, 2 Samuel is a record of events of God's redemptive plan that will keep you on the edge of your seats. I want to encourage you to read it, to read it, to read it, to read it, and to read it. Um, as David waits, I'm kind of backing up here because I saw that. One of the things we note here is that David would not touch the Lord's anointed. Secondly, he would wait for God's timing to ascend the throne. And that's something admirable about David. He was anointed, but he waited for God's timing to actually be crowned. Now let's just think about this word responsibility. Now I'm, I'm just being practical here, not so much about 2 Samuel in particular, but about what it is that we're doing here. It is my responsibility as pastor-teacher to labor week in and week out so that when we come together and we're unpacking God's word together, that I'm doing my best effort, my best work, so that things can be clear for you, that, so that you can see what God is saying in his word, and you can see how to apply it to your context, that you can see Christ in the picture of what is going on here. But I am not the only one who's responsible there's a whole bunch of people in here that are also responsible. I'm responsible to do my work in preparing a sermon and to unpack the text, but you are responsible as a child of God to do the work of studying the text before I preach it, while I'm preaching it, and after I preach it. That's why Scripture says that you are to be Bereans. All right, the example there is after the teaching takes place, you go home, you look it up, you look for yourself, you see whether or not this is true. See, we're not, a, we're not a cult that says you have to do everything that I say because my word is as if it's God. No, my job is to, is to be a pastor teacher. It's your job then to consider whether or not what I'm saying is true. And there may be some things that we disagree on, and that's okay, kind of. No, it's okay, really. There are going to be some things that that's, that's the way it is because there's some things that maybe are, are not, we're not certain about. And we can say, but these are the possibilities, and we, we want to grow together. That's the point. And my job is to help you with that, okay? So there's this issue of responsibility. So here's, here's what I want us to consider here, that we are in partnership together through this series. And I'm going to ask you to do some things. I'm asking for your, first of all, I'm asking for your prayer. As I am in my office or going through my, my daily routine, that you would be praying for me, now, what's interesting is that, um, and J.D.'s starting to learn this because he's been with us now for a year, um, but pastors don't do all their thinking in their office behind their desk. Um, they do the thinking when they're getting groceries. They're doing thinking when they're disciplining their kids. They do, they're doing their thinking when they're you know, cutting the grass and washing dishes. and all. It's, it's hard sometimes to tune it out constantly thinking about the text that we're wrestling with that week, okay? And I just ask that you would pray for me as God works in me so that that will flesh out in our time together. Secondly, I'm asking for your presence. You make sitting under the preaching of God's word a priority. That, that being here on a Sunday morning is something that is a, a habit and natural for you. And I realize sometimes things happen, you're sick or you're going to be out of town. And one of the great things that we're able to do now is we're able to, obviously we've, we've been putting it audio online, but we also have the video online so you can see me or JD doing this kind of thing in video. Or you can mute it, and it's even funner that way, right? But, but it's there. 
It's there as an opportunity for you then to be, to, 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 if you can't be there on a Sunday morning, to, to catch up and to be a part of what's going on in the flow of things, okay? So your presence. I'm asking for your participation, that you personally engage in the passage, that as you sit, this is why we have handouts with places to take notes, because we want you to be able to take notes or ask questions and interact with things as things are going on. And then as we gather in home groups, or if you're gathering with someone over coffee at Starbucks or whatever it might be, you're interacting with each other about what was, what was fleshed out that Sunday morning. Helping one another to apply God's word practically, carefully. All right? I'm, I'm asking also for your progress. You know, you can say, oh, I, I'm here. I'm listening, but I'm not progressing. God's word is powerful. And, and listen, I'm going to submit myself to what are we going to do next week? It's the next passage, right? And why is that? Because I believe God's word is powerful wherever it may be, and it has something for me to listen to. God wants to speak to me and to you through that passage. And so we steadily work our way through a book, trusting that what God has for us next is what he wants us to hear about, is what he wants us to be challenged with. And we say, okay, God, bring it on because we need it. As God's children, we want it. And we want God to have his way with us. And so we trust that as we study through his word, we are going to be progressing to become more like his son, Jesus Christ. And one last word is praise. I'm asking you to praise, not me, but to praise God. We sang about it this morning, but we see God's power, God's beauty, God's providence, God's redemptive plan, God's forgiveness, and his working through his people as, as masses and messes are unfolding in lives, and yet God still is seated on his throne, and we can still hang on to him. We can still be reconciled to him, even though we've met a, a mess of things. We can praise him because we see ourselves, our sinful selves, in the context of a book like Second Samuel. Now I want to draw your attention just as we bring things to a close. I want us to think about 2 Samuel, but I want us to shoot ahead a thousand years. See, there, there was another king who came to Israel by the name of Jesus Christ. Christ, of course, means Messiah or the anointed one. And the question for us then is this. What happened when Jesus Christ died? What are people thinking? For some people, their hopes were shattered. Here's the one who we thought was going to be king. And remember, the people were yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. And a week later, they were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, right? What changed and what happened? And we thought the, the king was going to be here and he was going to sit on the throne and Rome would be gone and our kingdom would be restored. So people's hopes were shattered. Even those that were around Jesus in ministry were wondering and contemplating what is going on here and trying to figure it out. And you see the disciples struggling with one another and yet at the same time, you see this hope rise up again because of things that God is doing uh, there, as Jesus is, is resurrected and he's talking to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 21, it says this, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. People were hoping that he was the one. And there was a sense in which when he hung on that cross and he died, that their hopes were shattered. Some um, believe that Jesus was disqualified by his death, in particular because he was put to death on a cross. That was a shame. That was a reproach. Um, that was, for them, evidence of God's judgment on him because he claimed to be God. So what will happen now after Jesus has died? Is it over? Maybe the disciples were asking themselves, have I just wasted all this time now, friends, what's different here 
is that when Saul died, God has been working through David. And the hope now comes with the reality that David has been victorious. When Jesus dies, we're not looking to someone else. We're looking to Jesus again. And as they waited for a couple of days, they would find out on the third day that Jesus was actually victorious in his death. See, friends, there's, there is a kind of a, a shadow from 2 Samuel here that's pointing ahead to what's going to happen with Christ. What appeared to be defeat in Christ was, in God's redemptive plan, a victory. And that victory was won by the one chosen by God to be king over all. Not David, but the one who is greater than David, Jesus Christ himself. And in his death, he reverses humanity's greatest failure. Romans 5.19 says this, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. See, as we go through 2 Samuel, we're going to see David held up as king. But as you see David held up as king, you want to see through David, and you want to see ahead, and you want to see Christ seated on his throne. Because he ultimately is the answer. He ultimately is the Messiah. He ultimately is the anointed one who has come and died and through his death brings victory. And it's not just a victory that says, oh, I'm saved. It's a victory that now gives us new life where he is our master, he is our Lord, and we place ourselves under his leadership, under his counsel, under his kingdom. And we say, Lord, how can I live for you today? And every time we open this Bible and we read a passage of Scripture, we're saying, Lord, how can we live for you today? How can we grow in our understanding of our relationship with you so that we can glorify you, we can honor you, we can serve you because we recognize that you are king? Friends, there's a lot for us to glean and to absorb from 2 Samuel. And I hope that as we partner together, that God would strengthen us, guide us, counsel us, fashion us, and shape us to be the people and the church that God wants us to be. Times are changing. They're changing fast. It's a little chaotic. But as we heard this morning once again, God's still seated on his throne. And because he's seated on his throne, we don't panic. We learn, we grow, and we seek to do his will for his glory. Lord, help us today. Help us to do our part, whether it's listening, studying, or whether it's preparing and delivering, or whether it's seeing in David our own sinfulness or seeing in David the beauty of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, just to get a picture of what you want us to see in 2 Samuel. Lord, give us Give us strength, give us discernment, and Lord, we, we just pray as we live our lives that you would use us to continue to, to, to move your kingdom in its right direction. Lord, we know that you're behind it all, but we know that we are your servants, that you use us in mighty ways and in incredible ways to accomplish your purposes. Lord, help us to see that you're not done. And Lord, even when things seem difficult or hard that are before us, we can certainly find hope, Lord, because you are our great God and Savior. And we can trust you and we can lean on you. Lord, I, I just wonder today that there might be someone here who's struggling in their walk with you. Lord, I ask that things that have been said this morning or, um, Lord, your word has, has connected, Lord, to a particular need they may have in their heart. Lord, I just ask that you would humble them before you. And, Lord, you would, you would encourage them and strengthen them, Lord, with with your gospel, to know that their sins have been paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ, Lord, that you died to wipe away 
our sin. But Lord, at the same time, that sacrifice was real. And it was that sacrifice once for all. And your son gave his own life for us. And Lord, as we continue on in our time here this morning, may we celebrate what you have done in offering up your body and offering up uh, your, your life, shedding your blood for us so that through this sacrifice we could be rightly restored to you, Lord, that we could re- be reborn. And as we remember, Lord, that new birth, that you would just encourage us and strengthen us, Lord, to continue to serve you and to live for you, um, for your glory. We ask now for your help and for your strength. In your precious name, amen.